Well, I certainly want to thank Dr. Allen for the privilege of preaching here this morning. It is such an honor. It's always great to spend time with students and colleagues, and I'm grateful to have so many from our church family here as well. They're such a gift to me, and of course, I'm grateful for my wife, Lori, being here too. It's good for her to hear some nice things about me. I'm not sure she believes I'm actually a Christian. (laughs) I've been connected to Midwestern Seminary since before cell phones were a thing. That's no joke. I've been a fan of Midwestern longer than Taylor Swift has been a Chiefs fan. Of course, if you came here last week, that's true of you as well. I, I first came to campus in 1989. I've been an adjunct professor since 08, served some time as a trustee, and not like prison, I don't mean it that way, but served 10 years as a trustee. And I'm so fortunate to call Midwestern my alma mater. This is a daunting task at some level this morning, preaching to many from my own church family who attend week in and week out, preaching to seminary students as well as faculty and staff. Some of you guys read Greek and Hebrew for fun, and here I am. (laughs) So I'm prayerful this will be an encouragement to you. I recently finished a book by Bob Russell. He pastored Southeast Christian Church in Louisville for 40 years. The book is entitled, After 50 Years of Ministry, with the subtitle, Seven Things I'd Do Differently and Seven Things I Would Do the Same. Absolutely one of the best books that I've read in a long time. So much of what he said resonates with me. At one point, he tells a story about what was happening with a new building program. This is what he writes. The construction was taking so long that some staff members were getting impatient. I instructed our associate ministers to bring a can of spray paint or a magic marker to staff meeting on Monday morning because we were going to take a field trip to the construction site. I would show them where the new offices were going to be, and I wanted them to write their favorite verse of scripture on the concrete floor. The floor would soon be carpeted and scriptures covered, but they could know they were standing on the word of God in their office. It was kind of a corny idea, but it caught on and the staff cooperated. The children's minister wrote, let the little little children come to me in her office. The music director, the worship leader wrote, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I wrote, preach the word in season and out of season. A 40-year-old single woman on staff wrote on her office floor, if any man would come after me, let him. (laughs) And then underneath she wrote, it is not good for man to be alone. We have to be careful how we handle the Word of God. I will certainly do my best. I'm going to call your attention to a beautiful text in the psalm. It's a portion of God's Word where I have found tremendous comfort, and I hope that it will bring comfort to many of you today. I want to talk to you from Psalm 56, Psalm 56, about some things that are part of life. Some things that are part of life. Psalm 56, and I'm going to begin reading with the very first verse. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. In case you're wondering, and you're probably not, we're going to deal with all 13 verses, but my favorite is the eighth verse. It speaks such comfort to me. It is, in fact, salve to my soul. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I find these to be among the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. So you'll know they're my favorites when we get there. So I've said on countless occasions, there's nothing accidental in the Scripture. There is order and there is beauty, and this is particularly true of this text. Commentators note that this is, at some level, a lament of the psalmist. The psalmist cries to the Lord on account of the opponents who twist his words against him, one commentator writes. His spirit of trust in the Lord is reflected in his composure and tranquility in the face of fear. And bear in mind, as noted at the start of the text, this is a psalm of David from the time that he fled from Saul for refuge in Gath. And for obvious reasons, David's proximity to the Philistines brought a clear and present danger. But notice, if you will, the construction of this chapter, and then we'll take some time to unpack it together. The structure of this particular psalm is a pivotal pattern. A strophe, you may recall, is is a rhythmic system composed of two or more lines repeated as a unit. And here we see the first and third strophes enclosing the central one. So we see lament and then trust in God and then affliction and imprecation and then trust in God again and then thanksgiving. Again, beautiful order there in the scripture, not by coincidence, I think we would recognize. But even as we move through the rhetorical outline points for this morning, I trust you'll see the flow of the text as noted, lament, trust in God, affliction and imprecation. Then there's trust in God again, and then thanksgiving. Imprecation, not a word that we typically use, is a spoken curse, especially toward one's enemies. So don't anybody go home and design an imprecation Facebook page this afternoon, okay? Just a few thoughts this morning, six mainly. First of all, lament is a part of life, surprisingly, for the righteous. Lament is a part of life, surprisingly, for the righteous. Verse 1 and 2, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Outside of a seminary setting such as this, we don't talk much about lament these days, do we? I mean, every once in a while, someone might say that they lamented a particular decision or something like that. Lament, we recognize, is defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So when it comes to the righteous, some might think that there would never be cause for lament, but there is. In fact, while we don't have time to unpack this fully, it may very well be that the righteous are the only ones who can fully grasp the concept of lament because we know what's at stake. 
especially in light of eternity. In this particular instance, the psalmist begins with a prayer for mercy, and then he moves to immediately pouring out his grief to God. As one writer notes, he paints his adversity in rapid strokes. It is continual, varied, and hostile. He demonstrates the fact that his adversity is ongoing. In these first five verses, he utilizes the phrase all day long, three times in rapid succession. He's stressing that his adversity is not subsiding. It continues all day long. So what we see in these first two verses is that there is an aggressor and there is a victim. The psalmist notes that man tramples on him and attacker oppresses him all day long. Well, at the risk of sounding imbalanced, I find great comfort in the stories of Bible characters who struggle. You see, if we're not careful for all kinds of irrational reasons, we tend to sort of separate suffering and hardship and doubt from the stories of our favorite biblical characters. I think that's because of our needs, but I can't prove it. And as I often say, that's likely a sermon for another day. Sometimes I'm afraid we want our heroes to be perfect and not have any struggles. I love biographies, but like Steve Brown has said so often, if you have biographies of people and the books don't include their weaknesses and their fears and their sins, then burn them because they're just not accurate. Suffice it to say, the psalmist is under attack and he's oppressed. If you, as a person striving for righteousness, have ever found yourself being attacked or oppressed, then you read this text and immediately something within you recognizes that your experiences in some ways echo that of David's words. We're not related, but perhaps we are. And I find comfort in that. I further find comfort in the fact that the righteous are not exempt from lament. We talk often, as we should, about the goodness of God. We should also talk often about the hardness of life. I think it's safe to say that as God's people, we need to relearn the practice of lament. We need to take the time and before the Lord passionately express our grief and our sorrow. While I cannot prove it, I'm afraid that in our day, lament and prayer has been replaced by just spewing opinions on social media. In Hurting with God, Glenn Pemberton notes the lament constitutes 40%, 40% of all psalms, but only 13% of the hymnal for Churches of Christ, 19% of the Presbyterian hymnal, and 13% of the Baptist hymnal. CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing International, licenses local churches in the use of worship songs and tracks the songs that are most frequently used in churches. CCLI's list of the top 100 worship songs from several years ago reveals that only five of the top 100 songs would qualify as lament. So lament is a part of life, surprisingly, for the righteous. Secondly, I want you to recognize trust is a part of life, especially for the righteous. Trust is a part of life, especially for the righteous. Verses 3 and 4, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What is David doing here? He's rehearsing what has become his go-to response. When he's afraid, he trusts in the Lord and asks, what can flesh do to me? What can mortal man do to me? He offers a beautiful example demonstrating confidence in the Lord. This is a great response based on the truth of who God is and not an emotional reaction to what's going on around him. 
Now, we recognize that we're emotional beings, but we need the reminder that we ought not to respond with just an emotional response all the time. We need to remind ourselves, even in challenging circumstances, about the goodness of God, and we need to maintain our confidence in the Lord. And I think we need that reminder more and more and more the closer we get to the next presidential election. Can I get a witness? This fourth verse brings David back to the proper stance before the Lord. Even under attack, even being oppressed, our lives should be marked by praise and not by fear. When it's all said and done, and it will be one day, we'll be home with God in heaven and no flesh, that is no person, will harm us ever, ever again. So trust in the Lord. As someone wrote, trust him when dark doubts assail you. Trust him when your strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him. He is ever faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. So lament is part of life, surprisingly for the righteous. Trust is a part of life, especially for the righteous. Number three, opposition is part of life, inevitably for the righteous. Look with me, please, at verse 5 and following. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their time will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. One of the great joys of my life has been serving as a professor here. I love what Midwestern does. I love the president and the faculty and the staff and the students. I love what we do because we're trying to prepare men and women for service and ministry. But that's comparable to how a preacher officiates a wedding. You see, the couple getting married simply cannot know all they're about to get into. Oh, they've heard a bit, they know a little bit, but they don't know fully, and the truth is, they can't. We try to prepare you for ministry, but there's no way anybody can fully prepare people for ministry. Dr. Steve Brown tells about one of Napoleon's assistants, and when they were getting ready to go into battle, he was sitting on his horse, and he noticed that his legs were shaking uncontrollably, and he looked down at his legs, and he said, shake, will you? Shake, will you? If you knew where I was going to take you today, you would shake even more. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you should be shaking if you know where God is going to take you. But I do know, I do know that we should all take very seriously the calling of God upon our lives. Ministry is a joy. It is. It is a great joy, but it's a weighty calling. And you're going to be dealing with the weightiness of it all and we don't know. We don't know what we're in for. A while back, I had a text exchange with my wife, and she was joking with me. You'd have to know her and know us. She was joking with me, and she said, you're just sad. And she meant it as a joke. And here's my response. I said, well, now that you mention it, I've dealt with death, financial hardship, in-law conflict with a couple, attempted suicide, Alzheimer's, misunderstanding about what the church can and cannot do, somebody who thinks King James is the only legitimate translation, and a situation where a spouse confessed a very unhealthy attraction to someone much younger, all while writing a sermon and defending myself against accusations that I'm a spiritual abuser. So yeah, I might be a little sad today. And that was all before lunch. My wife was joking. I wasn't. 
Listen, guys, ministry is a whole lot more than potlucks and podcasts. It's not just sermon preparation. It's conflict resolution. It's more than studying the Bible. It's studying people, too. It's a challenging life. But listen, as we were reminded in the recent For the Church conference, it's a glorious calling. So back to the psalmist in verse 5, all day long, there's that phrase again, all day long they injure my cause. Some translations will render that phrase, twist my words. This would be done by David's adversaries in an attempt to ruin him. David's adversaries, his enemies, would twist his words in order to bring harm to him. These people twist his words. They think terrible thoughts against him. They stir up strife and they lurk and they spend their energy striving to catch David doing something wrong. Thankfully, that's the last time this sort of thing has happened to a godly person, right? The point is, their opposition doesn't stop, so David invokes God's judgment. These verses conclude with David's call for God to cast down some people in wrath. Have you ever been there? Don't lie, because you're in chapel. This last part reminds me of a country song that came out a few years ago called Pray For You. And you know, anytime you put a country song together with theology, it's going to be great. (laughs) The song starts out by a guy saying he was so glad that he made his way to church and he's going to follow the advice of the preacher who had said we should pray for those who have heard us. And the refrain of the song goes like this. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray your dreams all never come true, but know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. Well, that's not exactly what David has in mind, but it's not the exact opposite of what David has in mind either. Now, when I read this biblical text, I'm struck by how unfair life seems to be. David, the man after God's own heart, sinful though he was, is bemoaning the fact that people were trying to ruin him. All this is occurring all the time, seemingly, or all day long, as he would say, and it just doesn't seem fair. When my kids were small, they would say, as children often do, Dad, that's not fair. It's not fair, Dad. And every time, every single time I would respond, a fair is a place to ride rides and eat popcorn. Kid, get over it. (laughs) Now, they don't remember anything profound I ever said, not that I ever said anything profound. They don't remember the times I would seek to quote scripture to them, but they remember a fair is a place to ride rides and eat popcorn. In a nutshell, what was I trying to communicate? I was saying life is hard. There would be a lot of hardship and turmoil in life. Life isn't fair, and the sooner we accept that, the better off we're all going to be. It's very harsh, but it's very true. Life isn't fair. So let me say to our students, ministry may not always seem fair, but God will always remain good, and God will always remain faithful. You and I have had people that at various points in life have disliked us, despised us, attacked us, and it may feel like it's occurring all day long, and all because you've done the right thing. Many years ago, I served a church where I would uh, get nasty grams via email every week. And you know what the main criticism of me was? They said, you use the Bible too much in your preaching. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong, because I've also had people against me for wrongs that I've done. 
But when we receive opposition for doing the right thing, it stings, doesn't it? And here's what I'm going to tell you about that. Are you ready? This is a good pastoral word of advice. Deal with it. It's life. It's part of ministry and it's part of life inevitably for the righteous. So let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Was Jesus always perfect? Yes. Did Jesus face unfair opposition? You bet. I rest my case. So lament is part of life, surprisingly, for the righteous. Trust is part of life, especially for the righteous. Opposition is a part of life, inevitably, for the righteous. Number four, vindication is a part of life, thankfully, for the righteous. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is my favorite verse in this pericope. As we noted in the heading of the text, this was written after the Philistines seized David and Gath. So this is not academic to David. This is why the text in verse 3 is so meaningful. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. David understood fear. David understood trust. In the third and fourth verse, we see the demarcation between present concerns for safety and concerns for eternal safety. David was asked, or David has asked, what can flesh do to me? Well, the truth is they can kill you. They can torture you. They can make your life miserable just before they take your life. But even that's only temporary. It's not eternal. Now look again at verse eight. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So what are the tossings? Well, we may think about things like tossing in our sleep. The concept here is much different and much larger than that. This refers to wanderings as well. It's a picture of challenging seasons through which we're walking. And God is cognizant of all of our suffering because he is. That assures us of his sovereignty and omnipresence in times of strife. You have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings. Let that sink in. That's David's version of reflecting what Psalm 16 says about God continually directing our steps. It's a reminder, keeping with the thoughts of Psalm 139, that God knows everything about us, even the number of our days. And then we skip ahead to Luke chapter 12. The theme is recapitulated in the words of how God has numbered the very hairs upon our head. Nothing is unnoticed by God. It is, above all, a beautiful reminder of the sovereignty of God. And then you have put my tears in your bottle. This is not like Jim Croce's old folk song, Time in a Bottle. This is a picture of God putting tears into a wineskin or a bottle. This is a picture of, of bringing to remembrance all the occasions of suffering. The tears are collected and the injustice is written down. As one commentator notes the record, and the collection of tears serve as assurance to the psalmist that the Lord will vindicate him. God will hear and respond in justice. As we'll see in verse 9 in just a moment, when the Lord comes to the rescue of his people, the enemies will be routed. As one writer notes, poetic license applied, the metaphor is a beautiful reminder how even in great pain and distress, we can acknowledge that God, we can acknowledge the God who rejoices over us with gladness, Zephaniah 3, is the same God who weeps alongside us when troubles mount. It's a beautiful picture. 
If we pause to take it all in, there's a lot to take in here. And this is so very tender. For the teenage kid being bullied, God is present. For the little child feeling lost, God is there. For people going to bed hungry, God is aware. For the adult being ridiculed for righteousness in the workplace, God sees it all. For the person lying awake at night, fighting off fear just long enough to hopefully get an hour of rest, God knows. For the couple in seminary counting change to see if there's enough to buy some basics at the store, God cares. And for the father looking out the window, praying for his prodigal child, God sees your pain. He is keeping track of this painful season in your life, and he's collecting your tears as a reminder of what you're enduring. Number five, hope is a part of life, gratefully for the righteous. Verse nine and following. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this. I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? These verses echo verse 4. Essentially, the psalmist holds out great hope in the vindication that God will bring. We should preach often, by the way, about the theme of hope. The truth is, hope is vital to human existence and human flourishing. Here, the psalmist demonstrates hope in the Lord will come through. I remember sitting in my study in another state watching the sermons of another preacher. He was a friend of mine, and his church loved him. And they followed him. And I was getting emails every week talking about how I used the Bible too much in my preaching. The other one that was repeated often, they said, stop trying to change us. And I remember watching those sermons and I would literally sit in my study and weep. In my first deacons meeting in that church, one of the men said he thought that I was a secret plant sent from Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers to infiltrate his church. I thanked him for the compliment and went on. <laughs> but it's not an exaggeration to say that, that those became Romans 8.28 moments. God used hardship for good. And I so love and appreciate the goodness of God's people in the place I've been privileged to serve now for some 18 years. And I wouldn't know how good I have it if it hadn't been so bad before. Hope has to be part of our life. This I know, the psalmist says, that God is for me. God is for me. Have you ever read anything in your life more pregnant with promise than that phrase? So lament is a part of life, surprisingly for the righteous. Trust is a part of life, especially for the righteous. Opposition is a part of life, inevitably for the righteous. Vindication is part of life, thankfully for the righteous. Hope is a part of life, gratefully for the righteous. Now let's land the plane. Number six, gratitude. Gratitude is a part of life, particularly for the righteous. Verse 12 and following, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Gratitude is a part of life, particularly for the righteous. Now, I'm sure we would all agree 
that one of the great needs in our world would be for greater gratitude. Instead of ending with lament and petition, David ends this psalm with a grateful heart. Think of all that he's endured, all that he's been through, and please understand this thank offering the psalmist mentions is not a payment for deliverance, but rather an expression of devotion to God for God's goodness to him. I have a home. I have food. I have a wife and two sons that I love dearly. I have good friends. I have vehicles that run. I have good health. I was afforded the opportunity for a good education. I serve a wonderful church. I have a beautiful granddaughter and two very handsome twin grandsons, sons of thunder, no less. And I, 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 still, I still can't believe all of those blessings. People ask me when our kids left home, expecting me to be sad. They said, is it, is it hard? Is it tough to be an empty nester? I said, are you crazy, man? It's like a honeymoon with money. So, so I'm a grandpa. And by the way, grandkids are the reward you get for not killing your own kids in adolescence. And listen, when Jack and Hudson come running up to me with their arms flailing, yelling, Grandpa, my heart melts. Oh, man, such gratitude. My granddaughter, Ryan, and these guys know her. Ryan's not lacking in the self-esteem department. She takes after her mother's or her grandmother's people. <laughs> she went to her Sunday school class at our church not long ago, and she said to her teacher, do you... Do you happen to know who the pastor of this church is? And the teacher said, why, why, yes, I do. And Ryan said very nonchalantly, yeah, that is my grandpa, you know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm more grateful that little girl claims me as her grandpa than I am for all the degrees I've earned or all the accolades that I'll ever receive. We ought to be, we ought to be a grateful people. I don't wish to sound preachy, but the truth remains. We often ask, ask, ask. There's so much to be prayerful for, but listen, there's so much to be thankful for too. I'm afraid if we're not careful, we neglect the beautiful art of giving thanks. Sometimes, sometimes if we're in a hurry or not in the right frame of mind, we even miss it when others are striving to live lives of gratitude. Mark Tidd of Webster, New York, describes the experience from his college days. He said an old man showed up at the back door of the house that we were renting. Opening the door a few inches, we saw his eyes were glassy and his furrowed face glistened with silver stubble. He clutched a wicker basket holding a few unappealing vegetables. And he bid us good morning and offered us his produce for sale. We were uneasy. We were uneasy enough that we made a quick purchase to alleviate both our pity and our fear. To our chagrin, he returned the next week, introduced himself as Mr. Roth, the man who lived in the shack down the road. As our fears subsided, we got close enough to realize it wasn't alcohol, but cataracts that marbleized his eyes. On subsequent visits, he would shuffle in wearing two mismatched right shoes and pull out a harmonica. With eyes glazed, set on future glory, he'd puff out old gospel tunes between conversations about vegetables and faith. 
On one visit, he exclaimed, the Lord is so, so good. Why, I came out of my shack this morning and found a bag full of shoes and clothing on my porch. That's wonderful, Mr. Roth. We said, we're so happy for you. You know what's even more wonderful, the old man said? Just yesterday, I met some people who could really use them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to be grateful people. In these days in which we find ourselves striving to live righteous lives in the midst of a whole lot of unrighteousness, God, help us to live with gratitude. Help us to live with a winsomeness. God, help us to live with the recognition that nothing escapes your gaze. Thank you, Father, that where we're going, you've already been, that nothing surprises you, and we can trust you fully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.